morning, everybody. So glad to have you here. And uh, we're thankful um, to be here on this very hot Sunday. Uh, so can um, if you're thankful for air conditioning, just raise a hand. Okay, yeah. Okay, I, I am too. Um, as we get ready for the fall, just one quick thing before I hop into the message. As we get ready for the fall, one of our um, goals here is to help you find your, your place in our church. And I think there's, there's a lot of, of diversity in, in our church. And so uh, we have a lot of people that like serving outside our church, a lot of people like serving in our church. Um, but as summer ends and we hit, hit the fall, we kind of shift gears um, people get settled again as kids go back to school, and it's a great time to just assess, you know, how do I want to serve my church for this, this fall? And so I just want us to be gearing up for thinking about that. Let us help, help you do that. We have all kinds of opportunities to serve, whether it's, it's uh, in, in the nursery with babies, and then little life, then kid life, then 412, then real life, then college, then re-engage with marriages, um, all kinds of serve, from coffee to security to parking uh, to welcome center. Um, all of these are areas that you you can plug into. And so just just be thinking about those things as we get ready for fall. Am, am I serving and do I want to? And so it, it's just a great time to do that. Um, we ended a series, a five-week series last week called What in, in the World? And so we talked about a lot of different things in that that, that series and uh, you can find that um, on online if you need to catch up, if you've been gone a while. And so for the next couple of weeks, as we get ready for Welcome Home Weekend um, and welcome our students back and families back, and we kind of settle in for fall, um, and I'm thankful that we're talking about fall. I'm sick of summer. And so um, as we get, get ready for that, I'm going to do just a few stand-alone messages, meaning they're not part of a series or I'm not trying to elaborate on one particular topic, and so today is one of those, and I'm going to do about three three or four of those may, maybe, and then I'll, I'll hit a, a fall series. Um, and so today I want to talk about uh, being empty, and this has been on, on my mind for a couple of weeks probably, and so I've just been pinning down different ideas and thoughts about, about being empty, and I, I think it's kind of this time, every single year, um, that people just kind of hit hit a lull, like, like a natural just depletion. And I don't know if it's because the pace of summer is different. Everybody's kind of off cadence, and they've been doing a lot, and they've been spending a lot, and, and, and your kids are at home, and you, you're trying to juggle um, life with all of that between, like, I want to keep my kids going and entertained and having fun, but I got a job to take care of and a house to maintain and a yard to mow and all the all the the normal stuff and then we come to church and church is, is a different pace and a different feel and we just kind of hit this lull before we kick into fall and so this is a great time again for us to kind of look at ourselves and say where am I right now and so I just want to talk about living on empty this morning and I want to take us to a passage of scripture where a particular woman was living on empty and, and kind of give us some biblical principle about that. And so I want to give you a little bit of backstory. I'm going to go to the book of Kings today, 1 Kings. And this is a very old writing, okay? This is um, very historical, um, ancient book. Uh, the stories in here um, were taught and told by the Hebrew people 
for years and years and years and years, and I'm always impressed uh, by these books, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, uh, the Major Prophets, Minor Prophets, all of those, because we're lucky to have them, and um, we're, we're we're just lucky to still even even have those writings and thoughts pieced together, where we can continue to to tell them and glean from these stories. So as we look at this particular story, I'm going to talk about Elijah, the prophet, and, and a story that he was involved in. But I, again, I want to give you just a little bit of context. And so here's where, where we are with this. There is kind of an unknown king of Israel whose name is Omri, O-M-R-I. And he, even though we don't talk about him a lot, he, he was very significant in some steps that Israel took. And the way this is going to play out is Omri has a son named Ahab, and then he has allied himself to the king of Tyre and and Sidon. And the king of Tyre and Sidon has a daughter named Jezebel. And so again, to make their kingdoms connect, Ahab marries Jezebel. Jezebel is uh, polytheistic, meaning there's a lot of gods that are worshipped there. And so she kind of brings that mentality to Israel, and she is very strong, okay? As a matter of fact, now in our society, we make a joke about it that when there's a divisive, strong, manipulative woman, we say that woman is a what? Jezebel. And so as, as we look at this story, this is exactly what's going on. So she has gone to Ahab and said, I want to set up a synagogue for my God, Baal, and I want him to be, be, be worshipped. Now this is a big deal because Israel at this point is monotheistic, meaning they're trying to worship Yahweh alone, but they're, they're heavily influenced, and Jezebel is driving this. I mean, she has a hard agenda uh, to make sure that her God gets recognized. So right here in the middle of Hebrew country, right in Samaria, she sets up this synagogue to Bel. Now, Bel is the God of fertility, but what is more important is he's also the Lord of rain, okay, R-A-I-N, and this is important to this story, okay? So Bel is, is the one who makes the crops fertile through rain, and so um, this is all transpiring and all going on, and, and then enters Elijah. And Elijah is this Hebrew prophet whose feats uh, would equate to that of Moses. Very strong, supernatural giftedness, um, strong personality, uh, kind of eccentric, and, and so he shows up on, on this scene from a little town called Tishbe, and he shows up, and he's angry. And he's like, man, this, is, this can't happen. We're, we're a Yahweh people. I'm tired of what's going on with all these gods moving into our culture, and somebody's got to take a stand and put their foot down. And so he has a massive call of God on his life, massive call of God. So much so that if you're not a believer, you would look at this and say this can't be literal. It has to be some type of fictional writing that's evangelistic or exaggerated. But just to give you an idea, if you haven't followed up on Elijah in a while, 
Let me tell you some of the things real quick that, that's happened through him or with him. Okay, He calls for a drought, which we're, we're, we're going to talk about in just a minute. So he basically says, there's not going to be any rain. And he, and he seals the skies. And it happens. And then he gets fed by, by ravens. I'm not sure that's a good thing. He raises a widow's son back to life. And then he calls fire down from heaven. Now, a lot of you are thinking about this story. I'm talking about it with Baal. He prays a 63-word prayer, and fire falls from heaven. But it happens twice. Okay, and so he also prays fire down on 50 men connected to Ahaz. And then he opens the sky up. So he prays for rain, and rain comes back. And then he's fed by an angel two times. And you know the story about God whispering to him. Okay, so it splits the rock. There's this, there's all, all, of, all of these loud things going on. And then in the still small voice, the Bible says, that's where he, he, feels, he feels God talking. He prophesies to Ahab, get this, this is how Jezebel ends. I don't know if you know the end of the story, but he says, hey, Ahab, your wife is going to be eaten by dogs. And she does. Okay, that's pretty significant. Okay, I know some of you wish you had that, that power. I don't think it'd be great to pray about it. Okay, let's just be, you know, quick discipleship there. Don't pray for that spiritual gift. All right, and then he divided Jordan, and get this, he never died. Okay, he, he never died. So according to Scripture, um, Elisha, um, his, um, a, a, a mentoree for him, comes and says, I want to learn from you. I want a double portion. And he says, listen, if you're there when I'm taken away, it's going to happen for you. And a chariot comes down and gets him. And the Bible says, in, in a whirlwind, he's taken to heaven. One, one translation says, a windstorm. Okay, So it's very bizarre and mysterious, but he never faced a natural death. And so these are all the things that, that's happening. Now here, before we get into our text, Elijah has prophesied no rain to put pressure on Ahab. Now the reason this is so significant is because Baal is the Lord of rain. And so Elijah is making a point here to say, I'm going to show you whose God is more significant. If he's the God of rain, my God's going to stop it. And he's going to seal it up to prove to you, that your God is not the God of, 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 of rain. But what happens in turn is this prophecy, now fulfilled, has affected communities. There's no water. So because God is doing one thing through Elijah, and this is a sermon in and of itself, this God's will has negatively affected a community. And so you've got people that are experiencing drought, no water, no crops, no way to feed animals, etc., etc., etc. And people are on the cusp of starving to death. And so this leads us to 1 Kings 17. I'm going to read seven verses here. And so if you have, have your Bible, you, you can turn there if you're going to look at the screen. Uh, you can do that as well. So verse 10, so he went to Zarephath, and Zarephath is modern-day Le Lebanon. Okay, just to give you a, a geotag there. 
And when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. Okay, now here's the main character of, of our story today. So he sees this lady, she's gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she's going to get it, he says to her, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. Now, this is where it changes for her. And she says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, okay, th this is her way of saying, I swear, I promise, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks. Okay, watch how empty she is. To take home and make a meal for myself and my, and my son that we may eat it and die. The last meal. The last supper. This is where it ends for us. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't have anything. I got just enough for me and my son to end this thing well. And that's it. In verse 13, so Elijah says to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small, now it's changed from peace to loaf. For me, from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. Okay, It kind of makes you mad at Elijah, doesn't it? You're like, well, wait a minute, who are you, a diva? I mean, showing up here, you know, demanding stuff. Let that poor lady go on and eat and die. And, you know, you're the one that stopped the rain. You know, why don't you get, get to praying? You know, I mean, you, you, you kind of aim, aim your finger at, her, at him when you start to see this whole picture. And then he goes on and says, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, the jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah told her. And there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Man, that's powerful. So an incredible, incredible story. So let's just reflect for just a minute. What does living life on empty look like? Okay, is it, is it when you go and you get ice cream and you come home and you pull up in the driveway and you stay in your car and eat it so your kids don't have to have any? Okay, is that, is that when life is really desperate? Okay, when instead of doing your laundry, you take it all outside and you, and you pour gas on it and you just burn it? You're like, I, I'm so sick of this. We're going back to Adam and Eve days around here. And you, you're just so tired of, of the piles, you just burn it. Is it when you pray the rosary and you're not even Catholic? Is, is, that, is that when you're on empty? As a kid, I played baseball a lot. I told you, and I remember one weekend, we were in tournament season, and I was on the mound, and it was important. And my father is, is, is calling in pitches to me because I'm really young. And I remember this one moment. I mean, it, it was like it had to happen. Okay, in the next couple of pitches, this thing had to end. And so as I got the ball in my hand, I'm tossing it around, feeling for the seams, about to, you know, get the call from my, my father. And, um, and I'm rolling the ball around, and while I'm waiting on, on his call with ball in hand, I, I just do this across. 
and my mom, my mom told me after the game, because you know, we were raising a Pentecostal church, you know. So my mom tells me after the game, she said, this sweet friend of ours behind me looked around and said, I didn't know that y'all were Catholic. And my mom said, that's because we're not. That's when you're on empty, man. You gotta, you're pulling all the shots out, right? Pulling it all out. What does it look like to be empty? Is, is it when we want to sell everything and just start over somewhere else? You know, that, that kind of thought you have. Let's just, let's just abandon all and just get in the car and drive and just see where the road takes us. Is that, is that when, when you're empty? Is it when you see your business spiraling and you're, and you're, just, you're just reeling for it? Okay, now I got some images here, here too. So what, what, what does it look like to be empty? Let's, let's go through these. Is it when you look in the fridge and you don't see much? Is that what it means to be empty? Okay. Marriage problems, tension, frustration in, in your home, does that mean that life is empty? When you can't talk, when you can't face it, when you got screaming kids? When you're frustrated as a parent, when you feel like you're not getting rest, when you thought, you know, you, you had read everything by James Dobson, and it's just not as applicable as it sounded when you were reading it, when you lose all, when there's, when you go from, you know, having everything to then being a minimalist to then having nothing, is that when you're empty? And then what about a tight month? You look at money, you look at where it's got to go, and there's not enough. You know, for us, this might be the equivalent of a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. I got, I got just a little bit, okay? And so there, there is a contemporary version of the 23rd Psalm. I, I, I want to give it to you. This is simply called Psalm 23 Revisited. Okay, and in it, the author of this captures perfectly where a lot of us might be this morning, okay? The clock is my dictator. I shall not rest. It makes me lie down only when exhausted. It leads me into deep depression. It hounds my soul. It leads me in circles of frenzy for activity's sake. Even though I run frantically from task to task, I will never get it done, for my ideal is with me. Deadlines and my need for approval, they drive me. They demand performance from me beyond the limits of my schedule. They anoint my head with migraines. My inbox overflows. Surely, fatigue and time, pressure will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the bonds of frustration. Doesn't that sound like some of us this, this morning? Just on fire with all the wrong stuff. See, here, here's, here's part of, of, of the problem. Some of us are driving hard on all cylinders, not realizing that everything we initiate, by default, we must also maintain. That everything we're adding to our lives, by default, has to have management. So everything we sign up for, everything we take on, Every extracurricular activity that we decide needs to be a part of our lives has to be maintained. 
And so we can get easily overwhelmed and we can pour and pour and pour and pour and pour into all these vessels, so to speak, that need our attention and end up where everybody else is full. Everyone else has taken a drink from our cup and we look and we're completely empty. This is the situation she was facing. I got nothing left to give you. I don't have anything. Like we've we we we've done away with all of it. The environment, this drought, the situation has drained me. And now I don't I don't have anything. And here's a big truth for us, and I need to hear this myself. We don't ever have a problem forgetting that we are Christians, but for some reason we always forget that we are human. We forget that we have limitation. That we can only do so much on so much strength in a 24-hour period. And we often forget that we are not superheroes. Yes, you can apply all those great scriptures, and they are true. Greater is he that's in me than he that is in the world. But it doesn't mean that we're foolish. We have to be wise. We can't live life on fumes. I read a a book recently was talking about an old surfer. and This old surfer made this great quote in here. I wanted to give it to you this morning. It, it, it says this, One of the true marks of a veteran surfer is not how he catches a wave, but whether he knows when and how to get off of it. Isn't that good? It's not, it's not about catching the wave. It's not about the adrenaline rush. It's, it, it's going, now's the time for me to leave this thing. And I think maybe we need to hear that. That as we assess and reprioritize and get ready for a new season and a new schedule, that it's a great opportunity for us to go, man, maybe I I need to let go of some things to get involved in some other stuff that's more life-giving to me. Maybe I need to be more intentional with my life and make sure that I am full and I am fed so that I can in turn bless other people, right? The old adage that we use in church, we're blessed to be a, a, a blessing. Well, you got to take time to get blessed. you got to take some opportunity to pull yourself up to the table and sit down and eat from the goodness of God. So when you are living on, on empty, your mental journey, if we use this lady as, as an example, your mental journey is always pointing toward death. This, this was her, her mentality. We are getting ready to die. And when you're empty, this is the thing that starts to come up. This thing is going to end. It's going to expire. Why? Because you're smart. And you know that, that the track you're on and the pace you're on cannot survive. It's why people bail. It's why people get out. It's why people say, i got to get rid of this business. i got to off this thing before I lose my shirt on it. Why? Because you see the end. We, we, have, we have this intellect about us that lets us look at where, where we are and go, I can't make it another year like this. And, and maybe you're here this morning and your timeline is not even a year. That you see yourself under pressure and, and so empty and on fumes that you think, I don't know that I can make it three months. 
This is when people start to get depressed. It's when people start to get suicidal. It's when people start to unravel. It's when people start to have irrational thoughts. And desperate people do desperate things, and it's dangerous to live on empty. And and there's kind of this dichotomy with us as believers to be in that type of circumstance because everything that Christ teaches is against that. He talks about coming to Him, casting our cares on Him, living a life more abundantly. Why? Because you're a believer. That you have access to something that other people don't have access to. So these are things that we have have to think about. So emptiness will promote isolation. Okay, now let, let, me, let me teach for just a second about this. There's a big difference between solitude and isolation. Solitude is a chosen separation for the refinement of my soul. Like I am going to take solitude, meaning I'm going to unplug, I'm going to disconnect, I'm going to fast from social media, I'm going to fast from food. I'm going to fast from from all the things that are normal to me, and I'm going to shake things up, and I'm going to get in a quiet, still spot. Why? For the refinement of my soul. Okay, Solitude is chosen separation. But isolation is what you crave when you neglect solitude. When you don't take time to refine your soul, when you don't take great intentionality of, of solitude and quietness for the purpose of refueling, then you will seek isolation as a remedy. Who, who here hates to stop and get gas? It's just annoying to you, right? It's one of the most annoying things that we do. Why? Because we're moving at the speed of light. i got to get gas. You know? I've seen you, some of you come pulling in at like 40, and your tires are like, you know, and you're coming in hot. And you get out and you slam in the door. I mean, you push it to the last. My wife is the worst about that. Push it to the last. You know, I I called the other day because I was on empty, and I was like, hey, we have similar cars, same same model, same, same make, and I said, uh, hey, ha- I'm, I'm, I'm on empty. My light is on. How many miles can I go? And she started calculating. Um, how long has the light been on? I don't know, five minutes. Oh, you're good. You got like 20 miles. Okay. How does she know that? Because she's been there before. Okay. So we hate doing it, but we have to with intentionality to do it. I got, I got to speed up. Okay, so King David reaches this place in his life of burnout and he prays a prayer that reveals two big things that he wants back. I want to show those to you. Psalm 51, 12, he prays this great prayer. He says, restore to me the joy of salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Okay, leave this up for just a bit. Two big words here, restore and sustain. Restore me, bring me back to where I was, and keep me there. Restore me, sustain me. Restore me how? To the joy of my salvation. Man, I could dig in this for the next hour. In, 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 in other words, David had reached a place where knowing about God 
and eternity and his walk with God and all the things God had done in him and through him and changed his life and and his great testimony of just being Jesse's little shepherd boy to now being the king of Israel no longer brought him joy. That's how burnt out he was. He said, God, I need you to restore to me the joy of salvation. And then watch this, and sustain me with what? A willing spirit. Now, the analyst in me looks at this and said, if I'm praying for a willing spirit, that must mean that something in me has felt unwilling. Unwilling for what? Was he unwilling to, to, to put his kids before Israel? Was he unwilling to rest? Was he unwilling to take a break? Was he unwilling to pray? Was he unwilling to change his schedule and reprioritize? What was he unwilling to do? And are we in the same boat? I mean, do we know how to look like Christians, talk like Christians, act like Christians, but inside you are really praying, restore to me the joy of salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit? But let me get to the application part. What was the answer in all this? Well, here's how Elijah coached this widow who was living on empty. Let me refresh you. Verse 13 and 14, Elijah says to her, Don't be afraid. Go home. Do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. The first thing, do not be afraid. Okay? Do not be afraid. If you are here today and you are empty, do not be afraid. The Lord sees you. He has not not forgotten you. He knows where you are. He still knows how many hair are on your head. Do not be afraid. Do you know that this, this phrase, fear not, is listed over 300 times in Scripture? Don't be afraid. 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 He's constantly having to tell his people, don't be afraid. Fear not. I'm with you. I got it. I know how you feel. I know how, how you're thinking. I know how scared you are, but stop it. Charles Spurgeon made this great statement. He said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows but only empties today of its strength. Emptiness will change us, but not necessarily for the better. We have to choose hope. We have to choose it. It's got to be intentional. It's a state of mind. You have to tell your being to submit everything into the obedience of Christ. You have to do that part of it. Tell yourself, fear not. I know the marriage seems rocky, but fear not. I know, I know the job seems scary, but fear not. I am going to make my being submit and come into the obedience of Christ. Second thing, he says this, go ahead, do what you were planning. Okay? He says, listen, you've got a plan, do it. And this is what sticks out out to me about this. Don't stop. Don't panic. Don't let life derail because you're experiencing a season of drought. You keep doing the plan. You keep living out the passion. You stay connected. You keep serving. You keep worshiping. You keep your relationship hot. Okay? 
Whatever you are planning to do, do it. Let me give you a cross-reference to kind of help nail this down. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples are in a boat. There's a storm, and I love this phrase. The King James Version says, And Jesus saw them toiling in their rowing. Meaning, the storm was going, and those fishermen grabbed the oars and began to work that boat to keep it afloat. Okay, Here's what, what's important. They did what they knew to do as experienced fishermen to keep things safe. We know what to do. Grab an oar and get, get busy. Let that apply to us. Keep doing what you know to do. Keep praying. Keep believing. Keep your faith in check. Don't throw the oars into the water and then throw yourself overboard. Okay, Do what you know to do, even if it's toiling in your rowing. Keep doing it. Keep going to work. Keep raising kids. Keep saving money. Keep doing all those things that, make, that give you margin, that give you health. Do all of, all of that good stuff. Keep on doing it. Emptiness does not have endlessness. Okay, It does not have permanence. It will rain again. I want you to say that, that with me. It will rain again. Let's say it again. It will rain again. It will. So here, here's what a lot of us do, okay? We, we pray and then we wait. We pray and then we wait. But my challenge is going to be is this. Do and pray. Don't pray and wait. Don't sit there and bite your nails waiting on the thing to fall apart. Keep doing it. Keep doing life. Throw your shoulders back. Bring your head up. And, 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 and re, get, get a resurgence in your spirit that this thing is going to end. Okay? All right, third, got to hurry. This is one of the best ones. He says, but first... Make me a cake. Okay, listen. For every good thing that God has for you, there's a first step. And if you don't take the first step, you abort the rest of the process. You got to take the first step. You got to be willing to move the first step. And here's what's awesome about God. But as a human on the receiving end, it is so stinging frustrating because he never shows you the whole process. Why? Because he, he wants you to have faith. He wants you to trust him. So he said, I know the process. You trust me. I got the process. I got you. You trust me. I believe that this is why David, when he went down to, to the brook, I've heard this preached a thousand different ways. He got five stones. So I'm going to say, you know what? Well, Goliath had some brothers, you know, and he was willing to take them too if he needed to. This is what I think. Man, if I apply this just in the flesh, just from just a fleshly example, I think he didn't know how it was going to turn out. Why take a gun with one bullet when you can load that thing with 50? So David's like, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I hope it only takes one, but I'm going to pack four more in case I got to let this sucker have it. Right? <laughs> Come on, y'all. Are y'all with me? Right? He's like, man, I, I don't know how this thing's going to turn out. All he knew was the first step was I'm ready to fight. I mean, he was angry. He was spunky. 
He had a, he had a little wild streak. He wanted it. He's like, I, I'm, you know, I don't know who you think you are, but you're not going to talk about God this way. Give me a few minutes. I got to go get some ammo. I'll be right back. And let the butt kicking commence, right? So he goes down. He grabs five, five rocks. Comes up. And he, he knows the first step. Mother Teresa said, I know God will not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish He didn't trust me so much. Isn't that good? Four. He will use what you already have. He will use what you already have. Okay, this is, this is the part about us that we always struggle with. We always think the answer lies with somebody else based upon what they have. If I could be that family, if I could be that person, if I could work where they work, if I could do what they do, if I was educated like, like that, then I would have different opportunity. And what I love about these kind of stories is it bring us back to the reality that, that God knows you and what you have and what your story is and what He can do with you. And He uses her resource to bless her life. You remember when he asked Moses, what is that what you have in your hand? What is that what you have? Because Moses was a king of excuses. You guys remember that? Oh, uh, you know, you got it all wrong. I can't even talk right. How am I supposed to go talk to to him when, man, I stutter? I I can't even get my thoughts together. You know, and it's just this and this and this and this and this. Gideon, uh, you got the wrong clan. And if you do have the right clan, I'm the weakest person in the clan. That's what he said. I think you got the wrong place. But if you do have the right place, I'm definitely the weakest person here. God said, you're, you're a mighty man of valor. Called him out. He wanted to use him. See, it was Elijah's mantle. It was Balaam's donkey. It was Peter's shadow. It was David's slingshot. It was Shamgar's ox goat. It was Joshua's prayer. It was the praise of the army that fell Jericho. All of these things is what they had. So here's, here's the question, and then I'm going to land right now. What do you already have that God wants to bless, multiply, or revive? How will He refill you and refuel you with your own resource? What does God want to revive in your home? What relationship does he want to restore to bring life back to you? What resource do you have in your life? And I'm not, I'm not talking about money. What do you have? What giftedness? What skill set? What ideas does God want to use in your life to revive you and resurrect some things? Okay. So why don't, why don't you bow your heads with me really quick, and then I'm going to 